Hello, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the big regulatory stories of the week. My name is James Paniki, and it's great to have your company again. Now, say you're an international hacker snooping around banks in the hope of scoring a major heist. Which banks are likely to provide you with the easiest target? And what do you do with the cash once you've got it? Now, these are obviously hypotheticals. Please don't try this at home. Yet the story of a major North Korean-based hacking operation has prompted lenders around the world to review their operations and to set up safeguards to make sure there is no repeat of the events that sparked massive losses. And on our special anti-bribery and corruption edition of the podcast, we also travel to Japan to see how the 500.com online gambling bribery scandal is rocking the country's political scene. It's a complex story that tells us something about Japan's very cautious approach to the gambling industry. That's in just over 10 minutes' time. First up, though, the North Korean hacking heist that has prompted a conversation about the security of financial institutions and how the proceeds of such crimes get laundered. It's an amazing story of long-term surveillance, offline printers and inadequate internal processes. Robert Thomason is an MLEX reporter based in Washington, D.C. He has written about the case, and he joins me now. Uh, Okay, Robert, could you uh, firstly give me an overview of what these cases are all about? Okay, they stem from a very extensive North Korean hacking operation uh, that was carried out by intelligence agency of the North Korean government. The entire scheme included things like ransomware and extortion and uh, cryptocurrency theft. But what we concentrated on was the threat to the banking community, the threat to the banking industry, both through the bank fraud of the cyber heist and also the subsequent money laundering. Uh, What's going on is the three North Korean agents have been charged. Also, a Canadian money launderer, a a fellow named Galeb Alumari, has pleaded guilty for his role in arranging the money laundering, and also a Nigerian who was operating out of the United Arab Emirates has been arrested and extradited to the United States for helping with the money laundering. He is fighting charges. Robert, you mentioned that it was an extensive hacking scheme. Just how extensive was it? Well, it was global. In the indictment of the three North Koreans, the Department of Justice listed 13 different countries that were affected. Uh, Banks in those 13 different countries were hacked and either money was stolen from them or uh, they tried to steal money from them. Also, there were unspecified banks in Central America and in Africa that were victims. So some of the, some of the money uh, went to casinos uh, and other bits of the money went out through ATM cash outs uh, in, in which uh, the money launderers hacked codes for ATM machines and took out lots of money that way. So uh, it was very widespread and it included a lot of different types of crimes. Now, of all of the hacks linked to these North Koreans, which were the bigger cases? Which were the most significant? Well, one of the biggest and one of the most interesting was with the Central Bank of Bangladesh. 
And that was a very big attempt to steal money. It involved the Federal Reserve Bank of New York as well. And what happened was that the North Koreans spent a lot of time lurking around the computer system of the Bangladesh Bank, finding out its weaknesses. They even went so far as to make the printers malfunction so that um, the Bangladesh Bank would not have hard copies of what was going on, of the transfers going on. And they tried to affect $951 million worth of transfers. But the Federal Reserve Bank in New York uh, saw it right away and became very suspicious and put freezes on most of those transfers. Uh, one, one transfer went to Sri Lanka, and that one was caught and returned to Bangladesh. But $81 million went to a bank in Philippines, in the Philippines. That was laundered out of the bank. So that was a very, very big one. In another case, in Malta, the Canadian money launderer arranged to have a lot of transfers go to Romania. And there, they managed to get some out, but not all out. All right. So, I mean, these are two very significant cases. So that does point to the success of this hacking uh, operation. Why were the hackers and the money launderers able to steal so much? Why was this operation so successful? Well, they went around the world and found the most vulnerable banks. And that is where they lurked and got their information. For instance, they were able to sneak into uh, the Polish financial supervisory uh, authorities computer system and lurk there and get uh, information uh, about the various banks and bank accounts that were going through that system. So they, they got a treasure trove of information that they later used for malign purposes. Uh, also, they launched spear phishing uh, attacks on unwitting bank employees and officials and got uh, personally identifying information. Uh, it gets back to how extensive it was and how uh, much time they spent on uh, the operation. They, they, they would just lurk for a very long time, just waiting for the most vulnerable to give them information. And uh, there, there was a discrepancy. Uh, some people would not give them the information. As a matter of fact, one of the very first attempts was in the Philippines, and that back in 2015, and that, that attempt was detected and discovered and shut down. But, uh, but they learned from that and went on and got more successful later. So, so, so basically, they just looked for the big gaping holes in computer security in banks around the world, and they exploited it. Mm. And, and Robert, just remind us what spear phishing is in this, um, in this context. Well, this is a technique for uh, sending a, a, a fraudulent email to someone, pretending to be someone you're not, and asking information of that person uh, via your fake persona. And that is uh, what they did, and some people fell for it. 
Now, something like this inevitably leads to uh, some soul-searching on the part of those who have been affected by it. Uh, So what has been done to prevent this from happening again? Well, um, a number of banks and organizations have set up better monitoring systems. Uh, For example, Bangladesh established a computer incident response team afterwards. Um, They had a police investigation and they found that the printers that I spoke of were using very cheap, outdated switches, uh, the kind that you and I might go down to the store and buy. So so they upgraded that system with more modern equipment. Uh, Also, Bangladesh recently um, did its very first financial uh, cybersecurity drill. So that is one thing. Uh, Another thing that enabled all this to happen was the North Koreans used a big worldwide financial telecommunication systems called SWIFT to send fraudulent messages. And SWIFT, in uh, the aftermath of all this, has set up new protocols and set up new teams, and they are more uh, aware now of the potential for the misuse and have established new procedures to prevent it. Now, does business care what banks are doing to prevent these things? And should business care? And if it does care, what uh, can it do? Well, they should absolutely care because their, their, their accounts could be drained um, and uh, you know, their, their cash flow could be interrupted. And, uh, that's very important. But it gets back to the phishing and, the, and their own cyber security. They, they, they really need to keep their, their accounts confidential and secure. And, and James, you see, that, that, that sounds very, very basic, but the sad truth is many people do not do it. I mean, we're, we're talking about anyone anywhere around the world who works for a bank or has a bank account or has this information is, is, is a potential victim. And what businesses need to do, no matter where they are in the world, no matter what their scale is, they they need to tighten up on their their, their system. the The other thing a uh, a cybersecurity investigator told me was that uh, you need to to watch the entire culture of cybersecurity and of business ethics. Uh, he said that one of the ways that the banks are hurt is that employees can be bribed to look the other way and thus it becomes a little bit of an inside job. So, so basically uh, what, what the businesses need to do is, is really stay up to date. Long, it, the, the days are long gone when um, they can uh, ig- ignore that. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, like the investigator said, if, 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 you, if you're not trying to be world class right now, it's inevitable that you're going to be uh, victimised. Well, I'll tell you what, Robert, after reading your story, every time my printer goes offline, I'll make a point of calling my bank manager. But uh, look, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great. Thank you, James. Robert Thomason is a reporter covering anti-bribery and corruption for MLEX. He's based in Washington, D.C., and we'll post a link to his story on the North Korean hack at our webpage, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just make a beeline for the News Hub tab, 
and it will be all at your disposal. In just a moment, the ABNC coverage continues with a look at the 500.com bribery scandal and what it tells us about how Japan manages gambling. This is MLEX's weekly podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor here at MLEX. Thank you for staying with us. Japan's 500.com online gambling scandal appears to be homing in on the political figure at the centre of the alleged bribery operation. And the outcome of the case has been watched eagerly by a group of investors who have kick-started a lawsuit in the US saying that the scandal led to the company's share price falling dramatically. Members of our Asian team have prepared a fine piece of analysis on this very issue and they've kindly agreed to walk me through it. Toko Sekiguchi is a Tokyo-based senior correspondent with MLEX and Ben Lucas covers anti-bribery and corruption for us from Hong Kong. Uh, Toko, if I may start with you, given that you're the one who's on the ground in Japan, could you please uh, give us just a quick refresher here? Uh, What is this all about? So in December 2019, uh, Japan's parliamentarian lawmaker by the name of Tsukasa Akimoto was arrested for allegedly receiving bribes from a Chinese company called 500.com that was looking to build a casino in Japan. And uh, the bribery is said to have taken place between 2017 and 2018. That was when Akimoto held tourism and casino policymaking positions in the cabinet. And he is said to have received about 3 million yen, that's around $30,000 in cash, and 4.6 million yen in entertainment and travel. In the next two years, uh, eventually eight people would be arrested and convicted uh, from everything from bribery to witness tampering. So it's clearly a, a, a big case in Japan. What does the future hold uh, for Akimoto? Where do things go from here for him? So at this point, he is in police custody and uh, his trial actually has not begun yet. Um, so uh, all the periphery players, most of them have been convicted. And so uh, the prosecutors are now focusing on himself and we are awaiting for his trial to start. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, casinos in Japan, because I suppose Japan isn't a country that most people would associate with this kind of institutionalized gambling. What is the status of casinos in the country? You're right. So casinos were illegal until 2016. And even before then, there has been there, there were uh, debates on whether casinos should be allowed in Japan. Um, mostly it was to attract uh, foreign tourism. And so uh, in 2016, the, the government passed a law that changed their illegal status. And Japan calls them integrated resorts, and uh, they have just started the years-long process of uh, laying down the policy and actually building them. So these are quasi-public projects with the aim to boost uh, foreign tourism, like I said. And yet the, the opposition is worried about organized crime and gambling addictions by opening up these uh, big-scale casinos in Japan. So the government put together its casino blueprint uh, late last year, 
and it's going to allow for three locations for now. Um, and uh, local prefectures or city governments will announce their candidacy from mid this year to April 2022. And uh, casinos, if everything goes well, are supposed to start opening uh, later in the decade. Now, this move towards integrated uh, resorts that you've just outlined and also the the underpinning concerns about organised crime and gambling addictions, I wonder if all of these developments have changed Japanese policy on corruption and, and gambling more generally. So the government has had uh, has made a lot of effort to address potential uh, addiction problems um, in building casinos. Organized crime, uh, they are working with the, the police and law enforcement, but the actual scandal and this pertaining to Fiverr.com in actually building the casino, that has actually had little impact in the larger scheme of the Japanese government's um, casino plans. The openings of these casinos were pushed back from mid-decade initially to later in the decade, but the pandemic has had as much to do with the delays in policymaking as has the 500.com scandal. Um, The scandal actually did prompt a code of uh, conduct guideline for bureaucrats dealing with casino-related businesses going forward. Um, And these guidelines and rules include things like having to have your supervisor present in meetings and preserving the records for discussions and meetings with businesses for at least 10 years. However, uh, other rules like not being able to use your private cell phone or having to meet in government buildings have exceptions written into them, so they themselves aren't that stringent. And as for corruption in general, Japan has, as a whole, has a pretty bad rep in anti-corruption community for not going after um, foreign graft. And the public is largely uninterested in foreign bribery. However, domestic bribery, on the other hand, makes for a great political scandal. There is a, a hot uh, bribery scandal uh, bubbling away at the moment involving the Prime Minister himself. Tell me something about that. So the big bribery scandal going on right now targets the Prime Minister's son, and he's a broadcasting company executive, and he was caught by the tabloids whining and dining communication ministry officials from around 2016 till December last year. Um, and this goes against the rules that prohibit bureaucrats from receiving gifts and entertainment from businesses that they regulate. Obviously, a broadcasting company would fall under the communication ministry regulations. When the scandal broke out earlier this month, uh, Suga tried to talk his way out of it, but under intense fire from the opposition lawmakers, he was forced to apologize in Parliament earlier this week about his son's conduct. And just yesterday, the communication ministry issued warnings and pay cuts against 11 of its officials that uh, who were allegedly um, targets of uh, Suga's son and the company's whining and dining. Does this suggest that perhaps bribery is now being taken more seriously than it had been previously? Uh, It's hard to say. Um, When it comes to guidelines, uh, they exist for public officials. Um, How hard they go after, you know, things like whining and dining is 
sort of up in the air because uh, you know Suga's son scandal actually broke with a, a tabloid magazine breaking the story. So it's quite possible that it may have never seen the light of day if the media didn't report on it. Mm. All right, uh, Ben. Turning to you now, what's the state of play outside of Japan in this uh, 500.com uh, com uh, case? What uh, what are things looking like in China and the U.S.? Hi, James. Um, well, there's no sign of a uh, investigation by the authorities in China um, or in the U.S. Um, China doesn't have a strong record of prosecuting foreign bribery. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's never um, prosecuted a company for foreign bribery, uh, despite many, many allegations over the years. And despite being the world's anti-corruption police, the US has um, traditionally struggled to go after uh, Chinese companies um, for foreign bribery. And again, I'm I'm not even sure if they've managed to um, get a DPA or a settlement with a Chinese company. And this is uh, presumably as a result of the fact that it's difficult to gain access, it's difficult to deal with the Chinese legal system, right? There are um, some rules that have been passed over the, the last few years which do restrict Uh, Chinese companies um, from handing over information or cooperating with foreign law enforcement uh, authorities. Um, So that's one possible hindrance there. But there's a a bit of a history um, of poor mutual legal assistance cooperation uh, from the side of the Chinese to the US when they filed mutual legal assistance requests anyway. And and with the sort of increasing uh, diplomatic tensions between the US and China over the last few years in particular, Um, I'm sure that that picture hasn't changed too much. If anything, it may have got worse. In the US, however, there is a shareholder lawsuit underway. Tell me something about that. Yes, so this was um, filed not long after the allegations surfaced in uh, December 2019. Uh, And this is a classic um, shareholder lawsuit linked to white-collar crime. Basically, um, the share price tanks following the stock market announcement of the allegations. And then you see the shareholder lawsuit say, you know, the company's failure to alert the market um, sooner about uh, the bribery allegations in this case means the share price was higher than it should have been. There was not the full information there for the market about this, you know, about these allegations. And then the share price falls once the allegations come out, causing a loss to the shareholders, and they look to sue for damages. And that's the um, the claim in, in this case, I think um, uh, the shareholders claim that the shares fell over 10% um, the following day's trading after the announcement was made of an internal investigation and the resignation of the company's chairman following um, the announcement of those allegations back in December 2019. So in that, in that respect, it sounds a bit like a uh, traditional, typical shareholder uh, lawsuit on that front. What about 500.com itself? What uh, has its reaction to all of this been? Sure. Well, um, their internal investigation that they announced um, at that time um, concluded, uh, quote, that it did not find a sufficient basis to establish a violation of the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. That's the U.S. anti-corruption legislation. Um, in connection with the company's um, activities in Japan. So the company at least believes it is safe from uh, investigation or prosecution from the US authorities, the DOJ and the SEC. But the um, company also announced um, last year 
that um, its former auditors, Friedman, um, had resigned because of a disagreement with 500.com's management about the effectiveness of the company's internal controls, um, which is not not great news for 500.com. And the shareholders have pounced on this and used this in their lawsuit. And, you know, they'll also be looking to use the convictions that have happened in Japan over the last few months uh, the last year, and they'll probably look to use Akimoto as well um, if he's uh, ultimately convicted to, to to boost their case. Um, so that's that's the state of play there from the company. All right, uh, Ben and Toko, this is a fascinating uh, story. Thank you so much for your work on this. It was a pleasure to read your analysis. Let's catch up again very soon. Thank you, James. Thank you very much, James. Speak soon. Ben Lucas covers anti-bribery and corruption for MLEX from Hong Kong, and Toko Sekiguchi is a senior reporter covering regulatory affairs from Tokyo. Their analysis of the 500.com case will appear alongside this very podcast at our webpage, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. Click on the recently renamed News Hub tab for everything you need to make sense of this case. And it's a wrap for today's podcast. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at around the same time for the very latest from MLEX's team of reporters in every corner of the world. I'm James Paniki. Thank you so much for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. (music)